Dearly Father, thanks again for this day, and I pray, Lord, as we take an extended look at Abraham, Abram, again today, um, we can see this, this drama that unfolds with some rival kings and war and how you are just consistently faithful. And I think that's what we can draw out of this, is how faithful you are to your people, that when you make a promise, you keep it. Even when we go sideways, even when we ignore it, even when we push against it, um, you continue to make yourself known, and you continue to keep us close to you if we let you. So help us, Lord. Help us to have broken hearts that would be close to you, and that we would never, ever turn our eyes from you. But knowing how we are when we do, that you'll be right there to hold us again. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, typically, I read through the whole section, and then we come back and pick it apart. And I'm going to do it different this time, because there's a lot of names in here that I don't want to have to read twice. Um, that's not true. It's kind of, okay, it's a little bit true. But I think if we look at it in chunks, because there's, there's several things happening, there's several moments, I mean, if we just read the whole thing, I think we're going to miss it. So today, we're going to go a little different, and we're just going to take the chunks. So where we left off last week was right after Abraham, Abram. I keep, I'm going to continue to mess that up. I can't wait till we get to the part where his name is Abraham, and then I can stop. But we kept going through. We see uh, 14, and then we went into 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So we have this moment up to verse 5 that he's, he's aware of his mistakes. He's come out of Egypt. He gets back to where he was supposed to be because this is what was promised to him. And then he has a moment with God at the altar. And we talked about that last week. We talked about how, can you imagine that conversation and how he had um, walked away from his wife and all the stuff he had done, that it, he had risked the promise that God had made, and, but God made it right. And so you have this moment of, like, Abram, is, he gets it. He's back. He gets it. He's in the promise. He's, he's not going to go, he's not going to walk away from that. He's not going to mess this up. But we, we see over and over and over again that God is the central character at keeping his promise. That as much as we look at these characters in the Old Testament, that we get to try to put ourselves in their shoes, we try to put ourselves in the hearts and the minds and what they're thinking and what they're doing, don't forget that the central character is God himself and his being a promise-keeping God. That he is going to continue to hold fast to the overarching promise he's made that there will be a people that will spread across this planet to bring glory to his name. And so too often we get, we get so caught up in the, the moment, even though it matters and our hearts matter to God, but we get so caught up in the moment that we forget the overarching picture. And so part of that overarching picture is that this land has been promised, it's supposed to be a, a place of God's glory being known, and then we get this moment where just right when it's all coming together again, like, okay, Abram's got it. He's, he's probably apologized all over himself to his wife, and this is going to be great. And then he gets right to the edge of throwing it all away again out of his stupidity. We pick up in verse 5. In Lot, find my spot, 
who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So, they're together. Hey, we're kinsmen. Hey, we have competing businesses. We both have livestock. We both have, and the herdsmen, Lot and Abram, are in charge. They're the patriarchs of their families, and they have servants, and they have all of this happening. And so the, there's a conflict between the herdsmen. And you can imagine what this is. Pasture land, water rights, hey, your stupid sheep are coming on my land and your stupid sheep are on mine and if you don't keep your sheep off my grass and I'm going to kill your sheep. And you can just imagine the conflict that's happening. With limited resources of water and grass and graze land and they keep, if both parties continue to grow, we know that Abram has a lot of wealth and so does Lot. And so they're continuing to grow in their production of all that they're doing. And so they're starting to have conflicts. And so they decide, hey, we need, to, we need to spread out a little bit. This land has been promised to Abram. God has made that promise to him, not to Lot. And they get to this moment where now there's tension. There's tension between them. And maybe Abram is afraid of the tension. Maybe he doesn't want to... Um, cause more conflict. Maybe he's carrying around in his heart what, he's, what has happened in the, the recent past with Egypt and going back and forth. And so he gives Lot the option. God didn't say, hey, play rock, paper, scissors and decide who gets the land. Or let's draw straws and see who gets it. God said, Abram, this is yours. And what does Abram do? He gives Lot a choice. So they come together. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, if Abram was sitting in the promise, if he was sitting in that moment, and he's keeping it all close, Shouldn't he have said, hey, this land from here to here has been promised to me by God. Let's work this out. You go this way. You go that way. But this area here has been promised to me. But he gives Lot the choice. If Lot had said, uh, I like where I'm at, you go. Then that would have been going against the promise that God had made. So Abram, in his I don't know. I, I'm trying to, I try to put myself in that this whole week. Like he's in a spot. Maybe he feels bad. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he just really trusts God that Lot's going to choose the right thing. But then we get a picture of Lot that's going to continue. And you have to see where, and I'll show you a map in a second so I dimmed the lights even more. Um, you'll have to like, look at what Lot's heart is in this. So we pick back up. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. So he looks around. You have the promised area, which is east of the Jordan River. Or sorry, west of the Jordan River is where modern-day Israel, the land promised to Abram, that he's walked around. He's been from 
Shechem to Bethel and Ai, down to the Negev. He's been in this area. And so Lot's response is, I'll take the Jordan River Valley. And so we have the return, that's the line, the return of Abram back to Bethel and Ai. I'll zoom in for you. And we have the separation of Lot and Abram here. And so Lot, like the, the, the goal, the green, is all the promised land that God has promised. And we know that Abram went down. This is where he's back at the altar. And eventually, we'll see here in a second, Abram comes down here to, Mam- to Mamre, or Mamre, and he ends up here. Lot goes on the other side of the Dead Sea down here to Sodom. He could have just went farther north in the valley, which in the Jezreel Valley. He could have gone a little farther south down here to Hebron, which is where Abram's going to end up here in a few minutes, we're going to see. But he chooses to go all the way around the Jordan Valley to Sodom. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because of its elevation. It's not, like when you see that body of water, that is not a good body of water for your animals to be around. Now all of the, the the rivers and the streams that flow into it, yes. So I've been, and I'll, when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll show you pictures. I've been to both, and you, on both sides, there's all this green that runs down the hills because all this water flows down into the Dead Sea, and in the Dead Sea is where it becomes stagnant, and it just dies because it's dead. Right? No? Anybody laughing? Okay. <clears throat> so Lot chooses Sodom. Why did he choose Sodom? Because Sodom already has a reputation. At this point, Sodom is already building its reputation as, I mean, I don't, not to pick on a certain place in this country, but um, it's a great place to visit. There's great people that live there. But if I tell you, hey, I'm going to Las Vegas for spring break, is it because you think Mike just likes a good buffet and some great hiking? Probably not. Like, we don't say that. Now, does Las Vegas have much more going for it than just the strip? Of course it does. But when you hear in your head, oh, we're going to Vegas, there can be other, our first thing is, oh, Sin City, oh, this, like all this stuff hits us in the face, right? That's what Sodom has already started to have for it. Before we're even getting to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, in a few chapters, what's going to be way after Easter, because we're taking a break for a little while, Back, so when we get into April and May, we'll hit Sodom and Gomorrah. But it already has a reputation at this time. So Lot has now flipped, and he's become the character of going against God. He's, his character study is the one who's going against what the Lord wants. He's seeking things outside of God's will. So the change in the, in the narrative arc flips Instead of Abram being the one who we're looking at going, ugh, what's his problem? We now look to Lot. And you're going to see here as we continue through this chapter, when Abram rescues him, he goes right back eventually because he loves it there. And so you're getting this this shift. But the tension that you should kind of feel is that Abram has been promised this land to the glory of God, for the people of God to grow. And in this moment... He gives Lot the choice. Lot, would you like to have all of this land or this area that the Lord has promised? Or would you rather have some other place? He goes, I'll take the Jordan Valley. 
And he doesn't go to the North Jordan Valley. He goes to Sodom, where it's not really going to be much easier for his, his herds. Um, I don't know if that we're going we'll to, we'll mention the city of Dan in a minute, but Dan, north of the Sea of Galilee, is where the Jordan River begins. And there are four springs that pop out of the ground, and that begins, that's the headwaters of the Jordan River. He could have gone so far north and been at the, the place of the beginnings of this valley. Instead, he chose Sodom. That's important. He's going to the place of debauchery, because that's where he wants to be. Verse 14, the Lord said to, uh, wait, we'll pick back up. Lot lifted his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So, back to this map. When they separate, there's a moment with God and Abram. He went back to the altar. He went back to the place between Bethel and I, and then he looks all around and he moves down to, the, to uh, Mamre and the oaks of Hebron. He, goes, he moves a little more south. <clears throat> it's a better location. It's a better spot. More strategic, outside of the pathway, outside of the, the, the route of the kings. It's going to become important in a second. He moves to that spot, and Lot is all the way across the Dead Sea. It's Sodom. That'll become important here in just a minute. Because in Genesis, we continue in 14... There is an attack. Some kings get together um, out of the Tigris-Euphrates River valleys, and they decide to go on the warpath. So chapter 14. In the days of Amraphal, king of Shinar, which the author is uh, Moses, the author of Genesis, this is Babylon. So this is the first attack of Babylon on the people of God. Uh, king of Elisar, I can't say that name. I looked all these up and now I'm drawing a blank. Um, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, so the valley of the Dead Sea, Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer. I'm getting that wrong. But in the nineteenth, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer. That is not right. 
Loamah, anyway. And the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim. This is why I didn't want to read this. I'm draw, we're just going to skip down. Then, in verse 7, Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of all of those. Ten. Uh, it was four against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell unto them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So there's, a, there's rival kings are on the warpath. And you have four kings coming out of um, the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, and they're coming all the way down the valley, and they're going to take out where Lot is. So all the kings I mentioned, you've got Sodom, Gomorrah, all, they're, they're going to come all the way down into this valley, and they're going to circle, which is known as the route of kings. They're, gonna, they're, they're on a warpath. They're just coming to grab stuff. It's not really, hey, I want this land. It's, it's a raiding party. Um, they are out for taking possessions, getting slaves, taking people. They're on the warpath to just grab all of the resources. They don't want to settle this land. They don't want to be here. It, it, we're more familiar with this coming from Viking raiders and the stories of the, the Anglo-Saxons and coming across and raiding into England and then going back with the spoils of war. That's what's happening here. But they're going to go down the valley and they're going to come and circle back around. And we see this moment where Abram rescues Lot. And this is another picture of God's provision and God giving this land to Abram because they, the, the, Abram isn't impacted by this fight at all. He's a herdsman, has his own property. He's not attached himself to a giant piece of civilization. And so when these raiders come down and around these cities, they're, they're looking for the spoils of war. They're not out there looking to just take over and take over Abram's land. They're looking for riches. And they pass right by Abram and all of his land and all of his servants and all of his herds. They don't even look to him. And when they're on the run, uh, where's the picture? Here it is. This is from the La Brea Tar Pits in California. But bitumen is, it's tar. And so the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are running for their lives and they end up running into a spot where they're sucked into tar pits and die. Maybe a little foretelling of the future of those cities? I don't know, maybe. I just thought it was an interesting detail that they just, we just kind of pass over. So verse 11. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Ener, Ener. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth. Well, I have to keep going, sorry. Heard that his kinsmen had been 
Captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back, yeah, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So you have this picture here of this war path going all the way down, taking all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, just, just rampaging through. And then as Abram hears about this, the army has already passed. They've passed and gone, and so Abram chases them down all the way as far north as Dan, which is the, the beginnings, the springs that begin the Jordan River, that pour into the Sea of Galilee, that then trickle out of the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. Like This is an important strategic spot. And so he chases them all the way to Dan, and it's, the, it's kind of the beginnings of the route of kings, the trade routes that you're going to go on both sides. You can go one side or the other of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and so you, this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pinch point. And it's a point leading into them going back to the Tigris and Euphrates. It's like the last spot where you can fill your water up and you get back and you, before you transfer and you head back to where the Tigris and Euphrates, where these kings are coming from. And so Abram chases them down to rescue Lot. And then we see this picture of Lot with 318 trained men taking on these armies. And we're starting to get these images that are going to carry on through the Old Testament of God using small forces to tackle overwhelming forces. That God is on the side of Abram. God is on the side of David. God is on the side of all that if there's trust and faith in God, he will allow great victories, great stories. So these kings have taken Lot, taken his possessions, taken his family. They're marching them for days all the way around the Dead Sea, all the way north, past the Sea of Galilee to Dan. They're headed off to Babylon, which we know this is a place where the people of God are going to be exiled. He's marching to Babylon, and Abram makes a run for it and chases him down. Attacks at night, some guerrilla warfare, some good old surprise. 318 men, we have no idea how big these armies are, but it's four kings coming out or taking out five kings. Maybe they're war-weary. There's all kinds of details I want to know, but God doesn't give those to me. And he rescues Lot. He takes care of his kinsmen. He takes care of this, there's someone in need. It's, it's a picture of justice all over again. We're going to see this happen with Saul. We're going to see this happen with David. We're going to see this, that God has a, a method to the, the chaos that we see. He wants people to know that it's not okay to do these kinds of things. So minuscule forces take over overwhelming forces so that the whole world sees that God is the one making this happen, not just private armies. 318 trained men from his household. It also gives some insight into this time where you have these herdsmen, you have his servants, you have his people, that they're trained in enough warfare and enough tactics that they're being used for this. This is like the ancient Minutemen that we would know a little more about here in the, in the United States. 
men that were trained in their communities, had jobs, had responsibilities, and that they had a bag and a rifle, and in a minute's notice, they could be called into action to go protect the town. So you have these herdsmen, kinsmen, or herdsmen, that are going to help grab a hold of this need, and they're just going to go. Abram just goes, hey, one of my kinsmen's in trouble. He's been captured. I caught word. Get your stuff. Let's go. And they don't. They say yes. Gives us some pictures into Abram's leadership of these men. And they rescue him. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. He rescues them all and brings them all back. Do you think maybe there's a little bit of loyalty to Abram after this? Or the story of Abram starts to spread in this whole river valley? We got rescued. We got, and we'll see here next week. Lot goes, hey, I'm I'm going back to Sodom. What? You moron. That's why Lot becomes the picture of rebellion. Babylon is already beginning to be formed in our eyes. This place is wicked and evil. Now, not to get all political, you fast forward to today. And people start saying things and mentioning things and saying pieces of land and pieces. It, you, that's why it's, it's illogical just to say, why can't you just get along? You have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of conflict in this region. And to just go in and go, can we just sign some peace? It's way more difficult and delicate and complicated than that. I don't have any answers. I wish I could give you an answer of how to... Well, I do have the answer. Jesus just needs to return. But save that. Like This is thousands of years of conflict in this region. You don't just push that away. It's hard for us in the United States to get rid of high school rivalries and sports. Like, I've seen grown men, 30 years after they've graduated, angry at the opposing team. Like, you, you do realize high school's over, right? And there's, that's just a sports team. High school rivalries. Now you expand that to this kind of conflict. We need to be a little more delicate and a little more nuanced in our conversations about what's happening over there. Because, yes, we all want peace. But it's not just as easy as saying, hey, it's just a piece of land. It's been fought over for generation after generation after generation. So what's this mean for us today? We see right now that Abram has turned back to God, and God is honoring and blessing and using him. It's a beautiful picture of redemption. All the way to Egypt, gives his wife away to another man, the conflict, he runs, he repents, He goes to the altar, and then God uses him in a miraculous way to rescue his kinsmen, to rescue his family, to rescue all the other people that are caught up in this conflict. Sends those kings packing. But we'll get to chapter 20, and he's like, oh yeah, she's my sister. All over again. But right now, he's he's in it. Lot has become the image of rebellion now. Lot has become this, and we're going to see this continual through the rest of the story arc of Lot himself. He's a man who is seeking after things outside of God, but Abram, for right now, is the one who's chasing after God. So it leads us to some questions, I think, for us. 
in reflection. What promises from God are you living under? And this might take some reflection from in the rearview mirror. What has God told you in the past? Has you've really felt led by God? There's been promises, there's been like what is that what's that look like? For me, like and just and these are the big picture ones and we're going to see here in a minute how those can sometimes be sent sideways because of your own doing or stuff from the outside. And how do we hold fast to those promises? Like I, I remember this moment where I was, I read a book and I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I read this book and I felt like history wasn't being taught to its fullest. And so I read this book and I just, I had been part of a small group when I was in college and, and this is what I'm going to, I need to teach. And so there was a promise. I felt God say, go be a teacher. I really felt that. And so then I do it. Because at first, I mean, I was a history major going to go to law school. And I was really kind of like, I don't know if I want to do law. I don't know. I, I, I mean, it made sense. And I'm going to do that. And I love history. And so what do you with a history degree? Well, you go to law school. And then in my junior year, I really felt called by God to be a teacher. And so I became a teacher. And then you continue. I taught high school. Um, I'm growing in my love of the Word of God. I fall in love with inductive Bible study. And then I start feeling this gnawing on me that I need to teach the Bible. I need, I need to do this. And so then six years in, I quit. And I start fundraising for a campus ministry position. year and a half into that, I quit. And I moved to West Virginia. And all through that, there was this, I really felt this call in my life to be a teacher. And that never changed. I don't think that's ever going to change. But how it looks is very different. I was teaching high school, and I think there's part of me that would have been happy doing that for my entire life. I, I really enjoyed that. But the call, I felt like it shifted. And so there's, there could be an overarching call on your life, a promise that God has made. And I really felt that he said that to me at this church in Indianapolis. I'm praying about what I'm supposed to do. Should I become a, a double major and get the education degree? Or, and there was all these obstacles and all this stuff. But I just felt like that's what I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be a teacher. Well, it looks vastly different now, but I think I'm still teaching. So it can look different if there's a promise and you feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. I really feel called by God to this, but there could be all these hiccups and, and twists in the path and, and you just, you hold fast to those. Had our kids. I want to. I'm going to spend time. I want them to know the word. I, I was terrified. I shared it a couple weeks ago to baby de- the baby dedication we had in the second service. That I was really terrified of having preacher's kids. That we're going to because you hear all the stories. Well, the preacher's kid, you know, the wild. You know, there's even rock songs written about the preacher's daughter. And like I'm like, oh, I'm just terrified. And like, what am I going to do? Like these kids are going to be around the Bible all the time, and I want them to know it. I don't want them and. To, to stray, and I don't want them, like I want them to love the Lord, and how am I going to, oh, I got to do this. And so you just hold on to them. And there's some stuff that's in my control and some stuff that's not in my control. But I've, I've felt all the way back then when both of them were born, you set the kindling 
and I'll light the fire. You put every opportunity in front of them, and then you trust me. I mean, I have two kids that serve the Lord and serve in ministries on campus or on campus, at the, at the high school. They love to serve. They love to, but that's not all just me. I felt a promise, like, if you just are diligent and you just stay connected to me and you put this, then go. Now, what's, well, who knows what's going to happen? They're 18 and 15. Who knows what, their, what life, but then the foundation is there. The core is there. There's a promise there. But then stuff goes sideways. So then we all have these overarching promises. Then we have the stuff, the curveballs of life. Marriages fall apart. Job change, sickness, frustration, health, all the curveballs. Heartbreak, despair. Read through the Psalms. Like we have all of, we all have these, don't we? I never thought I'd be living in Wyoming. No part of my life did I think I'd live in Wyoming. But man, it's been such a blessing. I love this place. But if you asked me 20 years ago, hey, if, if we put, open up a map of the world, where do you think you're going to be when you're almost 50? Wyoming wouldn't have been on there. What curveballs have, like, if you feel that there's been a promise on your life, what curveballs have been thrown your way that have made it look completely different than what you thought? And we all have those, don't we? In a multitude of ways. Some of our own making, that like Abram, we didn't hold on to that promise, we start to think we can do it our way, and it goes quite curvy. Or stuff that we didn't, we, it's in no control of us, of ours, something from the outside throws us the curveball, and it causes us to doubt all of the promises that we have heard from the Lord. Was that, was that really what I was supposed to do? Am I really, is that, oh, I, I, I thought I heard from God 20 years ago that this is what was supposed to be, and now I'm sitting here and I'm doubting everything. And it can lead to great despair. And I think the key that we can learn is, do we still hold on to those promises? Can we still trust God? When life doesn't look like what we thought it was going to be, and maybe nowhere close to what we wanted, but can we trust him? Maybe it requires some patience. Maybe it requires to just let things go and let God be in control and not try to force it ourselves. Or maybe it's a motivation to say, hey, get off your lazy backside and put some effort into this. You're not, you're not putting anything into this. I don't know. This caused a lot of my own self-reflection. So I'm just kind of putting myself out there in front of all of you to go, I don't know how to really end this one other than we get the details. War, Abram, 
We get it. It's all right there and right in front of us. Next week, we're going to talk about Melchizedek and the, the covenant made with Abram. And that's where I want to be. Like, that's the good stuff. Jesus comes down as Melchizedek, the great high priest. He's here. He's doing this. He's, there's this covenant. And we're like, yeah, go. But right before that, there's this. And I feel like that's the spot that we all try to avoid. We love to see the, the action. We love to see the spot. We love to have that story at the end where it's all perfect and it's great. And then it says the end. And we all walk out of the movie theater going, that's a good one. That should get nominated for an award. But what we see Abram and Lot right now is in that tension. And I think sometimes we need to sit in the tension. So that when we do see the amazing things God does and has done, we can really reflect on it well. We can really see like that. He was doing that the whole time. You see it in your kids, you see it in the people around you, you see it in your friends. When you've been on your knees praying for people and praying for situations and you don't know what's going to happen and you're unsure and then you see that the corner is turned and you ah, it's, you were there the whole time, weren't you? Weren't you? And then sometimes that curveball stays pretty curvy and we also raise our heads to the heavens and go, I still don't get it, God. I don't get what you're doing. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But I'm going to trust that promise. I'm going to trust that you're for me. I'm going to trust that you love me because of the experience of my life and because of the very word of God. We know he keeps his promises. So that's your homework for the week. What promises do you still live under that have been part of your life from the beginning of your faith or from a month ago? And maybe write them down. Like, think about them. And then maybe identify the curveballs. Where are the curveballs in this? Where's the stuff that's been, and is it of my doing? Maybe we need to repent of those. Is it stuff from the outside that's come your way that you have no control over? Have you had that conversation with God? Why, Lord? You made these promises, and now I've had these curveballs. Why? You know it's okay to ask him those questions, right? It's okay to have a conversation with your Lord in heaven. And maybe he'll start to reveal the why. Maybe he won't. But at the end, the hope is that you will still trust in the promises he's made on your life even with all of the sideways journeys. In the, in the, several years ago, it was explained to me like this. You have the three wills of God. You have the, divine, the, the sovereign will of God, that God's story will be known, his plan will be made, it will be done. You can take it to the bank, you can bet on it, his story will be known. Then you have what's known as the divine will of God, which is if we all follow the perfect path that God has for our lives, it's a straight line to him. And then you have the permissive will, which is us. And the things that we decide, and we, like, just like what we're seeing with Abram. Ah, I'm supposed to go here, but I'm going to go here. Ah, she's my wife, but she's my sister. That's in that permissive will part. 
where God gives us, as image bearers, the ability to get off that divine path of our, of our own making. The sovereign will is still going to exist. His story will be told. The perfect path of our lives would be the divine will if we just follow everything he says, which that's none of us. Because we have that sinful flesh that's in the permissive will. His promises of sovereignty never fail. Where are you at? What has hurt you? What has harmed you? What have you done? What are you holding on to? Do you still see God in the middle of it all? Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to put some effort in. Maybe we need to sit back and just breathe and trust that God's got us. That's often the hardest for all of us. It's to let him just do his thing and love us. So that's your homework. What curveball's been thrown, and do you still trust him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks again for this day. Um, thank you for never giving up on us, for never letting go. Even when we step outside that path, even when we go against you, I pray, Lord, you'll help us to continue to come back to you over and over again in the same way that you always come to us. Help us, Lord, to never forget that and help us to be able to sit in that promise. We know that you love us. You've proven it over and over and over again. But sometimes it's kind of hard to feel. So help us. Help us to feel your love. In Jesus' name, amen.